0: Rebellious son seeks a better life and wasted all he had. Broke, starving, desperate, humbled, he returns home to find something unexpected. started looking together last week at the story of the prodigal son and we said even if you've never been to church before or this is your first time back in a really long time you probably heard the story or are familiar somewhat vaguely maybe even uh, with the story of the prodigal son but we said last week that the the name of the story the prodigal son is a bit of a misnaming of the story because we said the word prodigal it really just means extravagant And that it's as much a story about an extravagant father who loves extravagantly as it is about a son who spends the money of the father extravagantly. And it's about a father who gives grace extravagantly to the son. It's as much about a prodigal father as it is about a prodigal son. And we're going to look more at this guy uh, next week, but we said it's not just about one son that gets lost. Jesus tells this story about two sons that get lost for very different reasons, And we said at the centerpiece of this story, the heart of the story is this idea of grace, this scandalous idea of grace that God distributes and God gives. And we said the powerful uh, heart of of last week, the the core of last week and the powerful core of the story is that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your story is, it doesn't matter how badly you've blown it in life, it doesn't matter what happened last night or 10 years ago, uh, the announcement of grace over you, the announcement of the story over us is that your identity as a son or as a daughter of God is bigger than any of your sins in life. And that's really good news right there. Your identity as a child of God is bigger than any of your sins or any of your failures in life. That's how this grace thing works. And this idea of grace is enigmatic. This idea of grace is curious because it doesn't matter if if you're a Christian or not a Christian, grace is always the first thing that we crave when we find ourselves in trouble. If you ever remember back, to, if you remember back to when you were a kid or when you were little and you would find yourself in trouble or maybe even as an adult or at school or uh, you find yourself in trouble with a teacher or with a boss or uh, if you get pulled over on your way home from church today, the first thing you're going to ask for from the officer uh, when you get in trouble is, can I just have some grace? It's always the first thing uh, that our heart craves. But on the other side of the coin, the interesting sort of curious thing about grace is that when someone has hurt us or caused us pain, Isn't it true that grace is always the last thing that will extend in their direction? Grace is the first thing that we crave when we find ourselves in trouble, but it's the last thing that we will ever extend. You just turn on uh, talk radio. You just listen to political radio. You listen to sports radio, and you begin to realize really quick, we live in a culture where people have a really hard time extending grace. It's the first thing that we crave, but it's the last thing that we want to give, And justice may be blind. Justice, the the famous statue of Lady Justice that sits outside of courthouses, has a blindfold. And justice may be be blind, but the idea of grace, the heart of grace, is that grace is not blind. Grace sees everything. It knows all of our sins. It knows all the pain we've caused. It knows uh, everything about us. And here's the amazing thing about grace. It sees everything, and yet it chooses not to condemn. And Jesus tells this story and makes this announcement of grace in the story of the prodigal son. And he puts at the very heart of this story this idea of a father who gives the one thing we crave, even if it's the last thing we want to extend in somebody else's direction. If you have a Bible, we can open it together to Luke, or excuse me, before we go there, let's go to Leviticus chapter three, all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You were probably having a quiet time there this morning, but just go ahead and turn there. Leviticus chapter three, And I want to give a little backdrop to the story of the prodigal son. We said last week that this story that Jesus tells about the two lost sons, the prodigal son, he tells it in response to a confrontation that he has with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are frustrated with Jesus because they essentially think he doesn't take sin seriously. They're frustrated because it has to do with this idea, we said, of of table fellowship. Jesus is eating with sinners and with tax collectors, people that he shouldn't be eating with. And it wasn't just about chips and guacamole. It's not just about fish tacos. Uh, They're frustrated because Jesus is essentially giving honor and dignity to people by eating with them that they think do not deserve honor and dignity. And so this group of people, the Pharisees, uh, they're frustrated that Jesus is eating with tax collectors. Now, we generally think about the tax collectors uh, 2,000 years ago. Well, this is just sort of like the IRS, and the Pharisees need to get over it. They just need to pay their taxes, Nobody wants to do it, but you just need to pay their taxes, and they just need to get over it. But it's worse than that. The, the, the uh, tax collectors, they're not just sort of the IRS of the day. They are essentially professional extortionists, and they are stealing money from the Jewish people. And so 2,000 years ago, you might have been a Pharisee, or I might have been a Pharisee, because they're essentially just frustrated that their money is being extorted from, or by the tax collectors, And we always think about the Pharisees as sort of this cartoonish, uh, maniacal sort of group of people. But they're frustrated about extortion. And their contention with Jesus, they say, Rabbi, you don't take sin serious. Because if you did, you would enforce the law. You wouldn't be eating with this group of extortionists and this group of tax collectors because the law clearly states all the way back in Leviticus, this is essentially their constitution, the law clearly states in Leviticus chapter six, verse four, if you go all the way back to Leviticus, it says this, and this is the law that the tax collectors are violating. When they sin in any of these ways and they realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found, or whatever it is that they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full. In other words, they need to pay back what they took, and then add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt, their guilt offering. And so their contention is, they need to pay back what they took, and then they need to pay back with interest. And this is how repentance works repentance in this world is essentially repayment. To get right with God, we'll have a meal with them, Jesus, we'll have fish tacos with them, but after, they pay us back. And Jesus tells this story, the story of the prodigal son, in response to this whole issue, because their issue is, Jesus, you don't take sin seriously, because if you did, you would make them pay the money back in order to repent. And Jesus, in response to this, says, let me tell you what God is like. Go all the way forward to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put this on the screens. Luke chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 15. Leviticus to Luke. And Jesus tells this story starting... In verse 11, and we set it up together last week, and we said that this story essentially starts with a son that goes to a father and says, give me my share of the inheritance, which we said 2,000 years ago, this is essentially a death wish to his dad. This is shaming to the father. He essentially says, I want you to drop dead right now because you can't get your inheritance until your dad dies. So he essentially said, dad, uh, do you mind dying? In a nice sort of casual way. And so there's this frustrating sort of, you know, this exchange that happens between the father and son, and the son gets the money, and it says he takes off, and verse 13 is where we'll pick up in the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son, so this boy who's gotten his dad's money, got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, so he has this moment of how in the world did I get here? How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. And Jesus tells this story to say essentially to the Pharisees, I do take sin seriously. That he tells this story about this boy who essentially had this idea. I don't know how it worked. One day he went to the mailbox and he got a brochure to go off on a a vacation. And he packed his bags and he heads off and he ends up going, how in the world did I get here? Jesus tells this story to say, I do take sin seriously. And he tells this story of the distant country to explain how sin works. Have you ever taken a vacation or a trip and about two or five days into the trip, you realize this is not the destination that I had planned. This is not the cruise that I thought it was going to be. And essentially that's kind of where this kid finds himself. My uh, wife and I, when we got married, when we first got engaged, actually, uh, several years ago, we uh, had this plan that she was going to plan the wedding, because she's a wedding photographer, and she understands the wedding industry, and I know nothing about floral arrangements. And so we decided she planned the wedding, and I would plan the honeymoon. And I thought, I can handle this part of the deal, and that way she takes care of the wedding, I'll take care of the honeymoon, and I'll just surprise her. she loves surprises. And so this will be, you know, nice, and when the wedding's over, you know, we'll just whisk her away to somewhere uh, glorious. And so uh, start putting some feelers out with some travel agents. You know, where can I go on a honeymoon? I had not been on a vacation since I was about 12 years old, and so I didn't really know how this worked. But uh, uh, the first brochure that came in the mail was for this island in uh, the Caribbean, this St. Lucia. And so I get this brochure in the mail, and I'm looking at this place, and I'm like, this is fantastic, I mean, they have a spa with facial rejuvenation, I mean, right there. I mean, this is glorious. There is an open-air concept room, which is only a three-walled room. I'm thinking, what could go wrong with an open-air room? That's just a beautiful idea right there. And so I'm so excited. I'm looking at this brochure, and I'm like, this is going to be awesome. Catamarans and sailing, and it's just going to be glorious. And so I click first brochure that comes, book it, book the trip. Wedding comes and goes without a hitch, we get on the plane, wife's surprised, man of my dreams has pulled off this amazing, extravagant trip, and we get to the resort and we walk in, and all I've seen at this point is the brochure, I have not been to the location, seen a few pictures on the website, and I walk into the lobby of this place and I'm like, this isn't what was on the brochure. (laughs) On the brochure, there was like a fountain in the lobby You walk in the lobby, it's like four stray cats walking around the lobby. I mean, this is not (laughs) what I thought it was. And my wife's kind of looking at me like, okay, and I uh, asked the guy at the check-in, okay, where's the room, where do we go, where, you know, where's, where do we go, he's like, your room's up on that mountain. I'm like, okay, this is gonna be the moment. She realized she buried the man of her dreams when we walk into this open-air concept room. And we walk into the room, and we walk in, and it is not the room I thought it was gonna be. It was not as glorious as I thought it was gonna be. Turns out a lot can go wrong with an open-air concept room. That <laughs> there is something called a mosquito, And my wife and I, about five minutes into this, being in this room, are sitting there going like this the whole time, and you realize, we're not going to smell like perfume, cologne, honeymoon. We're going to smell like off for the next four days. That's (laughs) what's going to happen. And I'm thinking, okay, nobody's going to say anything. You know, this isn't quite what I thought, but we're going to make the best of it. It's our honeymoon. We're going to have fun. Let's go down to the beach. And so we get down to the beach, and I had seen the pictures, blue oceans, rainbows, blue skies. And we get down to the beach, and it is not what was on the brochure. There was some serious cropping of the photo that had gone on. (laughs) And it is this tiny little parcel of land and I don't know why you can't make this up but there are farm animals on the beach. (laughs) It is like laying out in the middle of a petting zoo. I'm like, what in the world is this place? And we go back to the room, and nobody's trying to say anything. You know that kind of awkward moment, and you know, and I'm trying not to bring it up. And finally, the next morning, we wake up, and we're going to have a great day. We're just going to kind of, you know, roll through this. It's going to be awesome. And my wife looks at me, and she's like, "I'm not feeling so well." I'm like, "Oh no." I don't know if it was something I ate at the restaurant last night at the resort, but I'm just like, I don't feel good. And she, I'm telling you, she like the sickness of all sicknesses sets in. And for four straight days, she is in the bathroom puking her guts out and can't keep any food down. And then to make matters worse, we are uh, in St. Lucia at a time when it is not supposed to rain, but the rainstorm of all rainstorms hits this island for five straight days. And the wife is in the bathroom puking her guts out it turns out this is when the open air concept room gets really stupid because the rain is just whoosh just howling in and every creature on god's green earth is seeking refuge in our room we are now honeymooning inside of noah's ark and i don't know what to do i mean we're just you know wife puking in another room rainstorm howling in birds a chicken i saw on the beach the day before kind of walking around the room there's one TV, and it doesn't have any stations in English. It has one station on it, and it's in French, and it's just playing Aaron Brockovich, the movie, on loop. I don't know why. No English subtitles. And I just sat there for five days watching Aaron Brockovich while the rain came in. Wife puked in the other room. I don't speak French, by the way. <laughs> That's my honeymoon story. But it was not what I saw on the brochure. The brochure said blue skies and rainbows. Nothing about chickens pecking on your toes while you're on the beach. (laughs) And I say that today to say that's how this sin thing works, that you get a brochure in the mail one day like this kid did, like this prodigal did, and you think, that's going to be amazing. If I could just go there, if I could just have my cake and eat it too, if I could just be with her, if I could just get away from my wife, if I could just do that, if I could just, the grass will be greener on the other side of the fence. And you set off for the distant country, and you get there, and you have this moment of waking up and going, The photo's been cropped. I thought it was the destination of a lifetime. I thought it was gonna be glorious, but I'm sitting here, and instead of blue skies and rainbows, it is shame, regret. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I severed those relationships. And you wake up in the pig pen going, how in the world did I get here? The brochure made it look so glorious. It's what James says in James chapter 1, that temptation leads to sin. And sin, when it is full grown or accomplished, it gives birth to death. And nobody thinks that when they get tempted. Nobody thinks that when the brochure comes in the mail. Oh, this is going to end in death. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> this is going to end in a lot of regret and shame. It's going to be glorious. No, it looks so great, and you set off for it, and it's not a physical death, but it's a spiritual death, death to some part of you, death to a relationship, death to your freedom. And you set off in your free will and your free choice, I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna do that, and I'm free to do it, and you get there, and you end up losing your freedom in the process. And Jesus tells a story to say, I do take sin seriously. I do take the distant country seriously. And I think often we read this story and we think it has to be something really dramatic. It has to be, you know, you can't relate to the story of the prodigal unless, you know, you woke up in Vegas with prostitutes and cocaine and drugs everywhere. But it doesn't have to be that dramatic. It could be waking up one day at 32 or 42 years old and looking around at your life and going, this is not the life I set out for. And somehow I got here by choice. And the life I thought I was getting and the life I have, I look around at it, and this is not the life I want at all. And you can wake up and be in the distant country without ever packing a bag. And Jesus tells this story to say, I do take sin serious. And what do you do when you wake up in the distant country? Well, this kid gets a plan. And I think often we have the same plan when we find ourselves in that moment of going, The photo got cropped. I've been duped. And this is not what I came for. And he says in verse 18, he says, here's my plan. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And often we think this is the turning point of the story. But this is not the turning point to the story because this kid's plan is to go back and work for his dad and I'll pay it all back. I lost all this money and to make this right, he doesn't care anything about the relationship. He's just thinking I need to pay back the money that I lost. And the Pharisees at this moment would hear this story and they would say that is exactly right. Repentance is repayment. If this kid wants to make it right, He needs to go back and pay his debt. And Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees and saying, you think this is about a broken rule? (laughs) It's not. This is about a broken relationship. You think the distant country is about rules being broken and debts being stacked up and piled high. It's not. The, the, the story went wrong when the son gave the death wish to the dad, and this is a story about a rejected love from the father. This isn't a story about broken rules. And Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees to say that repentance is not repayment. Repentance is reconciliation. Repentance isn't when you can pay back what you've lost. Jesus is saying, you think this is about a broken rule. It's not, this is about a broken relationship between a father and his child. You think God just wants to collect payments for sin? He doesn't. God wants to reconcile sinners to himself, God wants to reconcile broken relationships. The story didn't get wrong, or the story didn't go wrong when he ended up in the distant country. The story went wrong when he said to his dad, I want you to drop dead. Give me my share of the money. And often I think when we wake up in the distant country, we have that moment of how did I get here? I've caused a lot of pain. I've caused a lot of hurt. I need to pay this back somehow. I think we think, so how's, how do I you know, rectify? How do I fix this situation? And this is the moment when God says, you don't. You can't pay it back. All you can do is accept the Father's forgiveness and love. And this business of, well, you need to meet God halfway. <laughs> halfway is too far for you to go. All you can do is accept the Father's forgiveness and love. And Jesus tells this story. It's not about repayment, repentance isn't about repayment, it's about reconciliation. And so now this son sets off to go back home. And it says in verse 21, Or the second half of verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. I love this scene. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son and the scene is so beautiful because uh, the sun is making his way back into the town he's left the distant country probably still has the brochure in his back pocket heading back into town and the, the villagers would see him walking back into town and this story takes place on the outskirts of town because we said last week that the villagers they had a ceremony called a kazesa and it was a shame ceremony where because of what this boy had done in shaming his father, he had also shamed his village. And the villagers would gather around him and they would smash these jars filled with corn and nuts as a way to shame him and publicly humiliate him and say, you're not welcome back into this village. So when they see the boy who'd shame the village coming back into town, they would start filling the jars up and they would start running out to perform the kazaza. And this boy is coming back into town and it says that the father sees him coming. And I love the heart of the Father. I love this, this picture that it gives us of who God is, that, is God, that God is a God of patience, that he never leaves the edge of the driveway, and he sees his boy coming, and it says that he runs to his son. And in this world 2,000 years ago, men do not run. It would be considered humiliating for a man to run because a man would have to hike his robe up and expose his ankles. If you lived in this village, this is something you would have never seen happen a man of this stature run. Aristotle even has a quote that men of honor do not run. It was considered an act of shame for a man of honor to run. You do not run. But what does the father do? He runs to his son, he kisses his son. And before the villagers can get to him and smash the jars and perform the kazaza, the father covers his son. And the father is willing to humiliate himself to spare and save his son from humiliation. This is a story that Jesus is telling about a father who is willing to humiliate himself to save his son and to save his child from humiliation. And the Pharisees would hear this story and they would say, how in the world could you ever prove that this is what God is like? And Jesus tells this story knowing that he is going to go to a cross and he is going to prove that this is exactly what God is like. And this is exactly how this grace thing works. Because at the cross... The story of the prodigal son isn't just a parable. It's not just a story. At the cross, the story of the prodigal son gets flesh and blood. Because at the cross, Jesus decides to run to you, to run to me, to cover our shame and our humiliation, and to allow himself to be humiliated so that you don't have to be, and so that I don't have to be. And he says, This is how this grace thing works. Jesus was not gonna die for law. He was gonna die for lawbreakers. He was gonna come into this world, and this would be the moment that is the turning point of the story, because notice, this this boy, in this moment, he's given a rehearsed speech in the pig pen where he says, I'm gonna go back and be a hired servant. I'm gonna pay my debt back. But in this moment, when he gives the speech back to his dad in verse 21, it says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't say anything when he comes back about paying the debt back. This is the turning point to the story because he knows in this moment that halfway is too far for him to go. All he can do is accept the Father's love. All he can do is receive because that is how the grace thing works. And the Pharisees at this moment would start walking out of the movie theater. How in the world could you prove that this is what God is like? And Jesus goes on and says, it gets better than that. It says, but the father, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. So they began to celebrate that this boy has come home. And the fattened calf, I love this, the fattened calf would feed about 100 people. That means that some of the people in the town that were gonna shame and publicly humiliate the boy would be at the ceremony welcoming this kid back. That'd be some awkward eyes at that ceremony. He puts the ring on the son as if to say, you have all the authority of a son. He puts the robe back on the boy and says, you are fully reinstated. The best robe, it's the father's robe, is being placed on you, even when you still smell like the distant country, even when you still have the stench of the distant country on you, you are fully embraced back into the arms of the father. This is the God that ran. And he tells this story, and he he kisses the son. The word kiss there, it literally means he kisses repeatedly. Such a powerful image of how God treats sinners. Wasn't going to die for law. He was going to die for lawbreakers. And Jesus tells this story of grace to demonstrate this that reconciliation happens before rehabilitation. This is the scandal of this story. Reconciliation happens before rehabilitation. On the surface, this seems like a story about bad parenting. Because if you had a friend who their son or their daughter had gotten involved in drugs and they had been away for days, months, years, and that son or daughter came back, and your friend called you and said, hey, uh, my son, my daughter is back. We're gonna throw a last minute party. We're gonna have a, a last minute gathering here at the house to celebrate that they're home. You would say, whoa, shouldn't they go to rehab first? Shouldn't they get cleaned up and then we'll celebrate? God says, that's not how it works in my house. Reconciliation and then rehabilitation. Because for 2,000 years, what Christianity has placed at the center of the human problem and at the center of the human dilemma, and this is what makes Christianity different than any religion in the world, because what Christianity places at the center of the human problem and the human dilemma is not a broken rule. It's a broken relationship between God And man. And that's why what we celebrate in church isn't just rehabilitation. What we celebrate isn't just when people get cleaned up and when marriages get fixed. What we celebrate is when prodigals come home. What we celebrate is when God and sinner are reconciled. Reconciliation before rehabilitation. When this equation gets flipped when this grace thing gets out of whack, when this, when this equation gets flipped, and some of us grew up in religious environments or churches where this equation was the other way, and what will begin to happen in churches or religious environments where this equation is flipped and rehabilitation comes before reconciliation is that rules will begin to become more important than people. Some of us grew up in, in homes, some of us grew up in churches where rules were sacred and people were secondary rules about the building, rules about what people wear. People would add rules that weren't even in the Bible and hold you accountable to them. And some of us grew up in churches that was rehabilitation, rehabilitation, rehabilitation. Let's all stand and sing Amazing Grace. And that's not the equation. Grace actually is amazing. Reconciliation before rehabilitation. Because Jesus didn't die for rules Jesus died for people like you and like me. Reconciliation comes before rehabilitation. And When this equation gets out of act, you know another thing that begins to happen? Is we will begin to use or misuse, rather, theology to mistreat people like the Pharisees did. We will begin to use theology in order so that we can mistreat people. If you ever wanna be a jerk to somebody and feel okay about yourself for doing it, just tell yourself you did it for a very spiritual reason. And I think if Jesus was here sharing this story 2,000 years later, he would say, hey, if your theology, like he tells the Pharisees, is causing you to treat somebody poorly, then you need a new theology because this grace thing really is amazing. Another thing that happens when this equation gets flipped and rehabilitation gets moved in front of reconciliation is that for some of us, if this is your first time back in church in a really long time or you've been distant from this whole God thing or you've got a lot of questions, you'll be tempted to think that you are supposed to get clean and get yourself fixed up before you can enter into a relationship with Jesus. You don't. You are one prayer away from being reconciled and restored back to God. That's how this grace thing works reconciliation before rehabilitation you will be tempted to look around at other christians and compare yourself and say i have so far to go before i get reconciled to god you don't you are one prayer away from being reconciled to god that is how this grace thing works and rehabilitation is important and after you become reconciled to god you can join the rehab process with the rest of us But rehab happens slowly. And the reason it does is because God will grant you amnesty, but he will not grant you amnesia. And you will still have the sights and the smells of the distant country rattling around in your head and in your heart. And the rehab process, transformation, it takes time. But what we celebrate is reconciliation before rehabilitation. And Jesus shares this story and says that. Is how grace works. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this announcement two thousand years ago. That this is what God is like. It doesn't matter what we've done. Doesn't matter what distant country we've been to or we are in. You stand at the edge of the driveway. God, I pray for maybe a mom, a dad who's here, and they have a son. They have a daughter that's a prodigal. They pray. They stand at the edge of the driveway. They have been the father just waiting and waiting and waiting. God, I just pray you give them strength to keep standing there. God, I pray maybe for someone who would say right now, Jared, I'm in the distant country. They got the brochure and they're starting to have this sense that this is not what I came for. God, I pray that this story would be a reminder they can always come home that you always wait at the edge of the driveway and they don't have to clean themselves up first. They are one prayer away from being reconciled back into relationship with the God that created them. God, we thank you that the cross is the ultimate demonstration of this story of how this grace thing works, that you would cover our shame and humiliation. You would allow yourself to be the public spectacle so that we didn't have to be. We thank you for that.